do I define the job of a leader? I think perhaps the most important role of a leader right now is to have an optimistic view of the future behind which people can rally and believe in. I think there's never been a more important time to be creating optimism, hope and belief that there is something greater to strive for. Hi there and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's completely free. In today's episode, we sit down with Cheryl Giovanni, the CEO of the Girls' Day School Trust. Cheryl brings a wealth of leadership and industry experience to our podcast. Born and raised in South Africa, her impressive career includes leading some of the world's largest companies in the advertising and creative industries within the WPP group. Cheryl's journey through the corporate world is remarkable. She has held key leadership roles, including being the CEO of boutique design agency Coley Portobell, European president of global brand consulting firm Landor Associates, and UK CEO of advertising agency Ogilvy and Mather in London. Throughout her career, Cheryl has been a strong advocate for women in the workplace actively supporting and mentoring individuals from various backgrounds. Her passion lies in the transformative power of education and the critical role that women play in creating a more equal and better world. In this episode, Cheryl shares some of her early leadership experiences that have significantly shaped her as a leader. We also get around to talking about how to really, truly connect people to the organization's purpose, vision and values. But perhaps more significantly, we talk about that common challenge of how to handle the brilliant jerk. That individual who might be delivering great results, hitting their numbers and delivering all of their KPIs, but the way in which they're going about it is counterculture. And on top of that, we cover a lot, lot more, all related to leadership and helping you be the very best leader you can possibly be. And if that wasn't enough, we also touch on equality, plus the opportunities and challenges that face future generations entering the workplace, and of course, particularly young women. That's enough of an introduction though, so let's dive straight in to this week's episode and please enjoy my interview with Cheryl Giovanni. Cheryl, can you start off by telling us about your first memorable experience of, of leadership, good or bad, in the workplace and how that has gone on to influence how you lead yourself now? A really interesting question, Ben. And I think the best example is actually the first job I had as a leader, which was when I was appointed as CEO of a small branding agency called Coley Portobello. And it was in WPP, and I'd left WPP and come back in. And 
was very excited about this opportunity. And when I got there and I'd accepted the job and, you know, I was going to be the CEO, I got to Coley Portobell and the current CEO at the time was pregnant and supposedly leaving the organization to go on maternity leave and she wasn't returning. But when I got there, fully expecting to be sort of the CEO and she was in a period of transition, she decided that she actually didn't want to leave any longer. And she said to me, I've had a change of heart. I need to stay. I will take a short maternity leave and come back. And what I've decided is you're going to be the managing director and you're going to report to me and we'll give you your own portfolio of clients to manage and I'm not going anywhere. And because it was my first leadership role, I was completely thrown by that because I thought I was coming to do one job. And this is a tiny company of only 50 people. And she had made a unilateral decision that she wasn't going anywhere. To be honest, I was a little bit shocked at the time. And I went away and reflected and thought I could probably still do that job and perhaps I should accept it. And I decided not to. And I went back in and said, I'm really sorry. I didn't come here to be a client service director or a managing director. I came here to be the CEO. That is the job that you hired me for. And you can't change your mind like you have, you know, this is what I've signed up for. And I really challenged and I took her on, which frankly, I was quite proud of myself for having done that because this was a, you know, a WPP agency. I thought she had the weight of the organization behind her, but I decided that I was not going to accept the position she then decided I was going to be in. And I think what it taught me is something really important. A, you have to know when it's time to go. And you have got to always put the organization's interests first. However much you as a leader think that you are the organization, I think it's really important that you don't ever get those two things mixed up because the organization has to be the priority for everyone. And we have to believe as leaders that we are there in service of the organization, that that, that is a separate thing and the change is the kind of constant anyway, and really important to remember, we are all dispensable. So it really taught me things that I hope I never end up being like. And it does remind me all the time to keep that in check and to have the humility to ask yourself the question about whether you are the right leader and whether you should continue to be the leader in your current role. I love that, what you've just shared, and particularly the piece around being in service of the organization. That's something that really resonates with me. And I I wonder, was that belief always there for you, somewhat underlying, and that experience brought it to the surface for you? Or was that a sort of new realization in in that moment? Because the reason I ask is the concept of servant leadership and leaders being in service of somebody else other than themselves has been around for a long time but I think it's still quite misunderstood and people think of it almost being subservient and a leader shouldn't be subservient but this whole piece around being in service really resonates with me so I'm curious to understand more of your view and perspective on that. It probably came to me at that time and I, I do believe there is something about understanding or or learning from the role as you take it on and what you believe you're there to do. So I often look around and I use examples of current leaders, particularly when I'm talking to the students in our schools, about how seldom you get a strong sense that people believe they are in service to others as opposed to 
thinking that they are they are the leader and it's all about them mm. rather than about their people. And for me, a recent unbelievably strong role model is Barack Obama, because there was never any question about why he was leading. Mm. He was always there in service, and it didn't make him less of a leader. It made him more of a leader. So your point about subservience, you can get those things mixed up. And I think if you're an arrogant leader who has a very self-centered approach to what you think your role is, you can be blindsided and blinded to the fact that that actually is not your role. And it's important to always remember that those people have put you there for a reason and you should never forget that as opposed to this is your own doing and you kind of have carte blanche to lead in any way you choose. Yeah, I could give you lots of examples of bad leaders, but we'd probably be here a long time. <laughs> and it's very easy to be critical, I suppose, I think everybody has to kind of learn as they go, hopefully, and having a learning mindset is really important as a leader. You don't know everything and you're learning all the time and you probably know less as you become a leader than you ever did. You're constantly learning. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's there's so much to, to explore just in what you shared there, Cheryl. One that I want to ask, which we've spoken all around it already, but it'd be fascinating to, to ask you directly. Based on all of your experience in your career and in leadership roles, how do you now define leadership and the job of a leader? Perhaps the most important role of a leader right now is to have an optimistic view of the future behind which people can rally and believe in. I think there's never been a more important time to be creating optimism, hope and belief that there is something greater to strive for. And, you know, I think everybody turns up to work to earn a salary, but I genuinely believe that a leader's opportunity and most important role is to ensure that you come to work for far more than that, that there is purpose and articulation of that purpose and that mission is perhaps the most important job for a leader right now. Yeah, I I 100% agree. It reminds me many, many years ago, my... I guess he's not really my my stepdad. My my mum's second husband was was chatting, I think, to me and my sister, and he said something along the lines of, "Yeah, but very few people go to work and enjoy what they do, do they, Ben?" And I remember thinking about it. I thought, surely that can't be true. But if it is, that's just really, really sad. Yeah, I agree. And that kind of spurred spurred me on to do what what I do. Like I really do want to in a small way in this world, try and create an environment through working with leaders where actually people are, if not inspired, at least energized and happy to go to work, like wanting to to do their best on most days because we all have bad days and go home at the end of the day sort of feeling recognized and and appreciated. So do you think it's just terribly sad if people don't have that willingness to go go to work because we spend so much of our waking hours as an adult at work right so if we're not enjoying it like what's the point what is the point and uh, you know I think leaders don't often get a lot of feedback about whether your staff do feel like that but at the GDST we have this um, mission statement which is about helping girls learn without limits and I was in one of our schools recently Putney High as it happens and I went to a drinks party for our new head who was arriving and she came along and one of the estates managers on the team at Putney High, 
came up to me at the drinks party and said to me, I just wanted to say to you that I know I'm here to make sure the estate looks lovely and to fix the, you know, the, the broken chairs and to sort out all the problems with the kind of plumbing. But it's really good to know that I'm I'm also here to help girls learn without limits. And that sounds like such a cliche, but it actually brought tears to my eyes because it made me think that if we are all there in service of that mission mm. and there is a reason he comes to work rather than going to do his job, you know, somewhere else, getting probably a job almost anywhere right now, given we know we're in an employment market where, you know, people can generally find jobs pretty easily right now. For him to have said that made me think there is good reason to believe that the work we're doing matters to people and they show up to work feeling like they're making a difference. And that counts for a huge amount. You're right. If you aren't happy doing your job, you know, you're spending an enormous amount of your, your life feeling really unhappy. Yeah, absolutely. That reminds me of the famous story of JFK and the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the hangar sweeper at NASA, right? Where he says, what are you doing? Helping put a man on, man on the moon. Yeah, it is the sweeper story. Absolutely. And it's just so, it's just so encouraging when you hear people give you the sweep, the, the sweeper story back and, it really matters to them that they are making a difference. The other thing I'm very encouraged by, though, Ben, to that point, is I think the younger generation have a much better sense of the value proposition between work and life. And I think they are coming into the workplace wanting a different kind of future. They seem to want more balance. They seem to be a bit more mindful of, of what they think a good life looks like. And I, I'm hesitating to use the word work-life balance because that's you know again I think that's a bit of a cliche but I, I am encouraged when I see people really thinking hard about the investment they make in work versus the investment they make in their lives and how they get that resonating for them personally so perhaps we are entering an era where people do feel a bit differently about work and I know there's a huge debate around agile working and working in the office and working from home and how much more that gives you as an individual to to make sense of your life. I, you know, I think those are good changes that are happening all around us if we manage them well. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, this point you, you raise here. I, I'll be fascinated to see how the generation of, of, people, of young people that will enter the workplace probably in the next 10 to 15 years how that evolves and what they look for. And the reason I say that group is because that's the group that probably saw their parents trying to homeschool them during COVID, trying to, a lot of them do busy jobs as well. And they saw that, that wrestle, they saw into their parents' work lives. They, kids saw that struggle for the, the cliched work-life work life balance. And I really wonder sort of, what values and beliefs that's that's taught them. I, I remember, like it still touches my heart just to think about it during lockdown. My daughter's eleven, going on twelve now, so probably what nine in one of the lockdown periods. And I was at, at home doing some work. My wife was upstairs in the home office, and there was some wet washing that come out the machine in the laundry basket. And I suddenly saw Freya pick up the the basket, go out into the garden, put the washing line up and start pegging it out. And I just stood there and, and, and watched. And then it went out and I said, Freya said, thank you so much for doing that. I, but I just, I'm just curious, what made you suddenly get up and, and do that? And she said, well, daddy, I've seen how hard you and mummy are working. 
so I just thought I'd help. Like, wow. n- nearly brought a tear to my eye, but there'll be so many millions of stories like that where kids have suddenly had this glimpse into a different world that they would have never, never seen. So it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out into the workplace. Yeah, I agree. Nice story. A few minutes back as well, you mentioned that as a senior leader, MD, CEO, it can be hard to, to get feedback, which I think is absolutely true, right? I think so much stuff can, if we're not careful, get very filtered by the time it, it reaches us. So how do you go about yourself making sure you're getting feedback and you're really hearing what's going on in, in the organizations that you've led? Because that's a really important point as well, I, I believe. I think it is a really important point. And also, you know, I think this is a learning organization. And if we are if we are genuinely a learning organization, we have to be learning too uh-huh. as part of you know, educating girls is one thing, but being a learning educate a learning organization is another. So some of the most valuable ways of getting feedback is just being in our schools. So spending time in our schools, spending time with students, going into the staff room as well, because I get feedback and understand what our staff are telling us, what the girls in our schools are telling us, and also parents. So, you know, whenever a parent gives us feedback, that's sometimes negative as well as positive feedback, I genuinely try and take some of those on personally. Mm. And I try and be available to to parents, to staff, uh, and to students. And for me, that is about trying to stay in touch with all the different stakeholders and what they are looking for from us and what the future holds. One of the things we're finding at the moment in our schools is parents of girls who are coming to our schools as young as three, those parents are asking us what our plans are. How do we prepare them for the world of work? And, you know, what does their future look like? How are you adapting to the world and how quickly it's changing and the skills you are providing? And, you know, we weren't hearing that even five years ago. People were far less worried about what the future might hold. And I think technology is speeding things up so much. And parents are concerned that, you know, they, they, their children are going into an education system that looks pretty much the same way it looked 100 years ago. It doesn't look very different. And I think there is also a generation of parents who have lived through a different era of technological development. And they're very keen to know what we're doing in our schools about how to equip students with the skills they need to probably work in a very different way and lead lives in a very different way. So lots of feedback, lots of different sources. And we have some more formal ones as well. We do an engaged survey with our staff once a year. And that is a very good way of getting a sense of what kind of employer we are and what our staff are looking for from us. We also do belonging surveys with our staff. So we're very committed to equality, diversity and inclusion as an agenda. And in the wake of the George Floyd murder, we launched an undivided manifesto, which isn't just a manifesto that has sat there. It has been absolutely an underpinning for all the work we do as an organisation. And the belonging survey is something we do with the pupils in our schools right from 3 to 18. We constantly are looking for feedback and and using it as thinking about how we improve and how we tailor what we're doing to deliver what we believe is a first-class education. So that may sound a bit like marketing speak to you, but actually, you know, this is the responsibility of preparing the future generation to be thriving, contributing, happy, healthy people is enormous. And there's a lot of challenge around right now. So the feedback is important. So we're honing the offer accordingly. I don't think it sounds like sort of 
marketing speak at all, I I think it's really, really important and and super powerful, right? And it, that is a massive responsibility. It reminds me, it was about a year ago, I was given a, a keynote presentation. We did a Q&A at, at the end. And somebody asked me a question, which isn't really a surprising question, but I think something must have been going on at the, in that moment, which made me think about my answer slightly differently to normal. And it was the simple question was, Ben, what's been your biggest leadership challenge? So I've had a first career in the military, then corporate, and now running my own business. And straight away, I went to some of the things I was required to do in the military. And I thought, actually, that's not it at all. Probably the biggest leadership challenge and the one that I think carries the greatest responsibility is being a parent. (laughs) Like it's the, and it's similar to, to what you and all of your colleagues are doing, right? Being a parent and a somebody who's got the privilege and responsibility to educate the next generation and not just formal education, but teach them good values and morals and ethics. It really is the ultimate test, right? Because children, probably more than anybody we lead in the workplace, they are constantly watching us and what we do as much as they're listening to, to what we say. And being a parent, there's there's no downtime, is yeah, there? And there's can, nowhere to hide you, as a parent. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I also want to go back to, it's linked to this same theme, but going back a few minutes as well, when you was talking about going to meet one of your new heads and that story about the estate manager who sort of almost perfectly played back the organization's mission. What do you think it is that you or some of your colleagues in the organization have done that meant they could not only play back the mission to you, but truly felt connected to it? Because in many respects, for many organizations, for many leaders, I think that's one of the holy grails, right? So many organizations think about bringing consultants to help communicate the vision and the mission and get everybody aligned behind it. And from what you shared, that seems like that's absolutely worked within your organization. It wasn't contrived or, or cliched. It feels very real from the story you told. So can you put your finger on like what's enabled that to be the case? I suppose it's partly my background. When I came to this job, I've been in this job for seven years, and I came from a marketing and advertising and sort of branding background, consultancy background. And I genuinely believe in the power of brand and the power of storytelling. You know, when I joined the organization, it was a network of very good girls' schools, but without a strong sense of purpose. So I think what I feel proudest of is I have... I have helped create, and I have helped because there are 25 brilliant heads of our schools who are delivering this every day. I've ha- I've created a sort of a really strong narrative for the organization that underpins everything we do. So it's not just puffery. It's not just something we say. It's almost the narrative, the drumbeat that the organization gets behind. And it's about how do you evidence what you're doing in your school every day to help girls learn without limits? So you know, it's this constant reminder of what we're here for, why we're doing what we're doing, and what are you doing that helps deliver it? Because if you're not delivering it, it is nothing more than a, a set of words. And I think also being really clear about our values are, you know, girls first. So whatever you're doing every single day, are you putting the girls first? Because that's what matters. Forward thinking. So what are we doing to make sure we have an eye on the future? What are you doing in your curriculum? How are you thinking about 
the way we are working that delivers that. Fearless is is one of the others. And that's linked partly to something girls really need to be risk takers. Building their confidence is really important. One of the biggest challenges, I should say, that girls face, and we have some very good evidence to suggest this, is their confidence levels plummet, particularly when they are in secondary school. Far more than boys' confidence levels drop. And what are we doing to ensure we're building the confidence that give girls the means to really have the agency to do the kind of important things they are here to do in the world? So that was fearless. And the last thing is family. So I talk about family, not a network, because actually we are a family of schools. We do this together. And that really is our superpower. You know, there is real scale to be had from working together with 20,000 girls across our network and seeing what we can do, you know, cross-trust events, CPD opportunities, all the kinds of brilliant stuff we do. So everything is in, again, is in service to our mission and is almost the filter by which we judge whether we're being successful or not. And I suppose what I'm good at is I'm quite good at being a cheerleader for that. And really, again, I think it's the job of the leader to make very clear what we're all here for and then to ensure that that filters through and becomes the DNA of the organisation by which we are moving ourselves forward. I hope that answers your question, but that's, I think, what I would say. Yeah, no, it answers the question brilliantly. And at the same time, I'd, I'd love to go a little bit more granular with it, if you don't mind. So on a practical level, like what are some of the things that you would actually be doing to keep reinforcing that drumbeat? Is it literally in your leadership team meetings and when you're visiting the schools, asking those sorts of questions of your leaders in the in the schools? Like, what are you doing on this? What are you doing to help girls be fearless? Is it that practical? It's that practical. And it feeds through, you know, from heads conferences to the annual school reviews that happen in our schools to examples of initiatives that we share and celebrate on our intranet and on social media. And, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy eventually because everybody is feeding into that same narrative and building it in a way that is really powerful. The other thing we do from a business perspective, though, is we get behind initiatives that help demonstrate that we mean what we say. So we have a program currently running with the London School of Economics in our six forms, which is called LEAD, which is Leadership entrepreneurship, advanced diploma. And it is a diploma that you get, which essentially is, you know, girls working together, creating their own businesses, generally sustainable businesses, which they then run and they fund and, Mm -hmm. you know, seed funding and they grow them and they, you know, they launch their businesses. So that's one. The other thing we have, we have a space tech program running with NASA currently, NASA and Amazon, interestingly. And that's about the fact that, A, there are some very specific targets around getting more women into space wow. and us deciding that it's a, an underserved area for women. STEM needs to be a much greater focus, particularly for, for girls, because that's how you feed the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And we've got this amazing program that has started to run both in our schools and in our partner schools, which are our state school partners, and more broadly internationally, which demonstrates, again, how we are how we are trying to create opportunities for women in areas where they are underserved. And the third thing, which is the single most important thing girls have told us they want, which is more financial education. So we did this massive survey for our 150th birthday called the Girls' Futures Report, and we talked to 5,000 students in the UK, girls, boys, 
state school educated, independent educated in both co-ed and girls only schools. And that came up at the top of all the girls' lists of what they wanted more than anything, which is a good financial education, which made them feel better equipped to deal with their own financial well-being as they move through the different phases of their life. So we're busy, we're in the process of, of developing a sort of a financial education module. And what we're trying to do, we've been quite ambitious with it, is how do we expand that from, you know, what might you learn if you're four or five in a school and what might you learn at 18? And what I would like to see, I spoke about this at a conference, actually, a financial industry conference where I said every single girl in this country should have this financial education. Help us get that sorted. Help us get that training into the hands of every single girl. And that's not to say boys don't need it, but boys don't need it as much as girls do. And given our mission is around girls, and there's so much opportunity that should be created to try and get women into the workplace in these kinds of roles, that feels like an, a, an obvious area for us to try and push and to make some progress on behalf of all girls. Yeah, sounds amazing. I also want to go back and ask you about this point linked to your value of fearlessness and young women, girls losing their confidence around sort of the start of secondary school age. And it's a slightly self-serving question as a as a dad to a okay. nearly 12-year-old <laughs> daughter, but actually a, a large proportion of kind of listeners to this show are of a similar age to me, probably have got kids. So probably for at least 50% of the listeners, this is going to be relevant. So two questions in one, really. Like, how do you know that? Like, what's the measure of confidence and why, what's going on? Why is it happening? Well, we have a lot of work that we've done. You know, we're a 150-year-old organisation with expertise around girls' education. So a lot of the work we do is around how do we create an education that is linked to how girls learn. One thing is girls do learn differently. Mm -hmm. Girls' environments are designed specifically around girls' needs. So what our research showed us is that the confidence, and, you know, these are questions asked of all 5,000 students um, about, you know, how confident they feel in their own ability, how confident they feel in the future, how confident they feel about getting the right kind of job, how confident they feel about earning enough money to support a family. And between 12 and 18, girls' confidence levels drop markedly, except the girls who go to a girls-only school. And girls who go to a girls-only school generally track much more closely to confidence levels in boys. So there, there are a few theories around that. A, the environments are designed specifically around girls' needs. Also, subjects, there aren't girls' subjects and boys' subjects. They're just subjects. So girls are much more likely to take STEM subjects in a girls-only school. Okay. And there is, there's good evidence to back that up. And they get all the opportunities to be leaders. So, you know, they will be the head team. You know, they'll be the head of the rugby team. They will be the captain of the rugby team. They'll be, you know, they'll take the lead roles in plays. There's just a lot more opportunity. And, you know, there's also, you know, really good um, research that, that shows that girls often stop playing sport in senior school. They have all sorts of issues around body image and how they're feeling about as they are, you know, as they are developing, how that puts them off things like sport, which doesn't happen in a girls' school nearly as much. You know, girls definitely, and this isn't just a plug for girls' schools. This is me genuinely being interested in how we help girls everywhere. But some of these things are are important to try and build into any classroom situation. So, you know, when girls are looking at their subject choices, 
they shouldn't be thinking about where are those subjects where I'm going to feel more comfortable because that's what's much, you know, the humanities are much more likely place for me to, A, be in a classroom, but is that what I'm meant to do rather than thinking much more expansively about the opportunities that are presented to them. It is very well researched and, you know, those confidence levels are an issue and they're an issue even when, you know, girls and boys go to university and get into the workplace. And the gender pay gap starts to open literally from the time you first you go into your very first job, which girls generally much less likely to ask for a play rise, much less likely to put themselves forward for opportunities or to really, you know, push hard or challenge the system. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done around building confidence in in girls and helping them feel that they are well-equipped. Fascinating. Hopefully that you have a listen to your programme. I'm I'm happy to provide evidence of anything I've said, but, you know, there is a real case for, and, you know, everyone talks about this figure, and it must have moved by now, that the world economy would be that much better off. $28 trillion is often floated if there was um, equality in the workplace. Well, that's the financial argument for why this stuff matters. Um, there are lots of other good reasons. Mental health is better. Families function more effectively when there is equality in the, in the household. So, you know, it's a good place for us to focus if we all want a better world at the end of the day. This um, equality idea, and especially in terms of boardrooms that are well-balanced, gender-wise and leadership teams that are well-balanced, I think is a really interesting one. About two years ago, I studied an applied neuroscience program. And the professor who was teaching it in one of the modules, we started talking about human stress responses. And we all talk about the the fight, flight or or freeze response, which which is well known. But what Professor Riddell said is, whilst men and women can both have the fight, flight, and stress response, and and we do, there is a stronger tendency for men, biologically, neurologically, to respond with fight, flight, or freeze. But there's also a strong tendency for women to have the, what we call the tend or tend or befriend stress response. And actually, wouldn't it be amazing if organizations in times of pressure and crisis responded with with a little bit of both instead of sort of the slightly archaic alpha male dominant response which is we're going to kill the opposition like just get out there and 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 crush them and then ended up not thinking about the people in the organization or a way where everybody could win instead of it being this kind of competition like from a neurodiversity perspective as well there's so much potential to be more profitable more human build a better organizations and better society if we're just tapping into the expertise that all genders bring it's it's so important yeah and that's such an interesting fact really really interesting i'll take that away really yeah fascinating it gets you thinking doesn't it yeah it does and you're right, it's about having both in the room. It's not about one or the other, it's about both because that's what's additive, that's what takes you to a, a new level of performance. There's lots of threads I want to hang on to from our conversation today. I just want to go back to the piece around really reinforcing the purpose, values and beliefs in the organisation. It's quite a specific question. During your time at the 
Girls' Day School Trust or maybe in other organisations, have you ever had the situation where you've had a brilliant performer, maybe an amazing teacher, someone who is technically a very good head teacher, but the way in which they go about their work isn't aligned with the purpose and, and values? And if so, how have you managed that? Because I often think that's the true test of the culture and the leader, right? Are you... Do we say, oh, yeah, I know they don't quite behave in the right way, but their results are amazing. So we'll just let them get on with it. But they can be quite, it's quite corrosive, right? I have a very real example that um, you're right, is very corrosive. And it is a good test of what really matters. And I suppose my learning in this particular situation, which was an incredibly high performer, the school was full to bursting. I didn't really look very far beneath the surface because everything was going so well, even though there were signs that perhaps it wasn't as well aligned to the mission and vision as it should have been. I kind of let it go to a point to a point where it was untenable and had to be stopped. I suppose my learning of all of that, and you know, it's a shame I, I can't give you more information about it because there are some real learnings in there. I left it too long. I my I didn't trust my instincts soon enough. Okay. And I was blinded by the fact that it was successful anyway, and therefore I should just let it ride. And I should have called that person to account quicker than I did. And I was probably forced to do it eventually. So it's a real learning for me about trusting your instincts and making sure you that the values are absolutely the thing that drives the organisation. Whether they are successful or not isn't really the point. It's whether they are living the values Uh, But that's, you know, that's a difficult balance to strike because at the end of the day, even though this is a very large educational charity, it is also a business and you are trying to manage those things and be respectful of the fact that there is real diversity in leadership too. Not everyone leads in the same way, but I do believe you have got to lead by the same values and you've got to be signed up and you cannot pay lip service to those things. So my, my learning out of all of that would be make the tough calls quickly if you have to because you probably know you need to make them and you shouldn't let anything else get in the way of you making that decision and also I think there's something about as a leader and I think you grow in confidence in terms of trusting your instincts enough to do what you think is right regardless of the detractors who may tell you you're making a mistake you have to sometimes make unpopular decisions that you have to live with the consequences because it was the right decision to make and not everyone will have liked it or appreciated it or perhaps thought it was the decision you should have made. Yeah, it's an interesting one, Cheryl. I was chatting with Susie on my team just this morning before we came in to record this on a different topic, but the the underlying lesson I think is is still the same. I think in leadership, this is certainly true, probably in every aspect of life, I, I suspect. There are some lessons we can easily take on board and learn from other people and there are some that we just need to learn ourselves through what seems like the hard way and I think this acting early especially around difficult conversations is is one of those like we can be told that numerous times by mentors and coaches but we kind of need to go through it ourselves don't we and I, I do think that so often a lot of the 
difficult, sticky situations we find ourselves in at work around individuals and their performance that can often end up being quite unpleasant and involving sort of HR and formal processes. A lot of that often stems from something relatively small that wasn't tackled early on in a conversation that was put off and it it grows and grows and then suddenly you've got this big horrible mess to, to sort out. I totally agree with you. And we can I can think of several, as you're speaking, my toes are curling slightly because I'm thinking exactly that. You know, we don't have the difficult conversations in the right way either. I think we sometimes avoid them because one of my qualities that I work on quite hard is I, I like to be liked. I like to feel that people are buying into me and that they're going with me and that we're on the same side. And that can't always be the case. And sometimes... You have to put that to one side and not worry about that quite so much and deal with things in a very fair and firm way and not kind of avoid the issues when you know you need to tackle them. I think that's absolutely right. Because you're going to have to at some point and the longer you leave it, the more they fester and the worse it becomes. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think there's something about real humanity, being able to have, a. and I know this isn't always easy, it's an absolute minefield with HR generally, is being able to have an honest human conversation with somebody where nobody is sitting there thinking, how can I build this as a case against you, the organisation, what have you, rather than genuinely being able to say, let's have an open and honest conversation with each other about how we think things are going and where the problems are. I think that that's one thing I, I regret we don't have more scope to do in the current climate. Cheryl, if we were sitting across a real table, I would lean over and, and high five you to, to that. I 100% agree. And, and to be really clear, this isn't me having a, a dig at HR professionals. Like I used to be one, I, I still am one in a roundabout way. And I, it's a great profession and do an incredibly important, difficult job at times. And at the same time, I think sometimes, maybe often, some of the processes we feel we have to use can make things very unhuman and make things difficult. So I I do really think there is something to be said for having real open, honest conversations with empathy and compassion early on. Yeah, totally agree. You know, when you get that script that says you have to say this sentence before you engage in the conversation. Trust is gone. Yeah, exactly. You build a, a lack of trust into the conversation right at the get-go. And you kind of never recover from that, particularly if it's somebody who has trusted you. It's um, it's really difficult. And again, I agree with you. It's not about HR per se. It's about, you know, the kinds of unintended consequences of some of the processes we put in place to protect organizations and individuals, importantly. I get that. It just doesn't make for the kind of authentic leadership that sometimes we all aspire to. Yeah. Yeah. Cheryl, I've just glanced down at a list of 10 questions I thought I might ask you today. And the only one I've answered is question number one. And what that means is, that means it's been a great conversation because the times I don't get to my questions generally means it's been been amazing so thank you so much um before we wrap up i'd just love to ask you a couple of my regular quickfire questions to to finish okay so the first one is and i always have to caveat this with other than your smartphone what is the one item that if it were to be lost stolen or broken you would immediately go out and replace my apple watch no question 
I don't even have to hesitate to think about that. I could not live without my step count, my calorie count, and my exercise monitor on a daily basis. It it's just something that I really would miss. I miss enormously if the battery runs out, for example, if there's anything wrong with it. So that would be the thing. Great. And what is the one book that you would say has really had a significant impact upon you? Or maybe to ask the question in a slightly different way, what's the one book you find yourself recommending the most often? Good question, because at the Heads Conference recently, I talked about this book called 4,000 Weeks. Ah, just read that myself. Yeah, well, there you go. I just think there's something very, very salutary about reminding us all that in a lifespan of, you know, 80 years, you literally have 4,000 weeks. And um, I absolutely love that book. And I don't generally like self-help books about time management, which is I know how it's built, but the sort of philosophy around time management and happiness and how to make the most of your life I absolutely loved. And there's this there's this quote in there that I use all the time, which is you should always choose uncomfortable enlargement over um, uh, comfortable retrenchment, I think is the quote. And it's so true because it's so much easier often to kind of just live with the status quo rather than really thinking expansively and being courageous about how you use your 4,000 weeks. So I love that book. And it's almost anti-time management, yeah. isn't it, the book, really, when you when you get into it? <laughs> totally. It's a wonderful book. Cheryl, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. We've gone off in all sorts of different directions, but we've kept this kind of leadership thread throughout. So thank you so much for sharing your, your expertise and giving up your time today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. Before you go, just let me say once again, thank you for joining us on a, another episode of the podcast. I really hope it resonated with you. But more than that, as always, I hope it's created some valuable leadership insights that you could go away and apply to make you a better leader and to make your team more effective. Before you head back to whatever it is you're doing, please do go ahead and take a look at my new delegation mastery program via the link in the show notes. As I've said before, it is the most comprehensive online program I've ever created. And I know that you and your team will get huge value from it, especially as we know from countless research studies and my own research, in fact, that says delegation is one of the skills that leaders continue to struggle with the most for a multitude of reasons. So if that is you, let me help you by signing up for my new delegation mastery program. And finally, in the show notes, you'll also find a link to the book that we mentioned, Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks. All that leaves me to say is thank you once again for your support. And together, let's continue to make the world a better place through great leadership and, of course, effective delegation. Until next time, look after yourself, look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And, of course, lead on. <laughs>